The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So it's a so it's a uh, honor to welcome uh, Tanisra Bikwa here to IMC again, and a uh, pleasure to introduce him to all of you. Uh, he was ordained in Thailand many years ago as a uh, Theravadan Buddhist monk with the name of Tanisaro, so sometimes called Tanisara Bhikkhu. Bhikkhu means monk. And um, more informally, he's uh, known by his uh, Western name, Jeff, uh, with a, uh, he's called Tan Jeff or sometimes Ajahn Jeff. He's one of the leading teachers of uh, Buddhism in the West, uh, especially Theravadan Buddhism. He has a monastery in Southern California, San Diego area, where he's training uh, monks, which is a wonderful thing, and uh, has been very instrumental in supporting the development of Western uh, monasticism uh, in Theravadan tradition. He has a two-volume book called The Monastic Codes, which um, uh, goes into great detail to support the life of uh, Buddhist monks here in the West. The, um, he's a, a wonderful practitioner. He's practiced deeply in Thailand, and he's come back here and is a meditation teacher. He has wonderful books called Meditations and a variety of other things where he um, is training people in meditation practice. Uh, he's also a wonderful scholar, though I think he doesn't like the title so much. Um, <laughs> Gil, you've got to cut the word wonderful out of your what? vocabulary for a while. <laughs> wonderful is okay? No, 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 wonderful is just too much. I don't know. <laughs> He's a scholar. <laughs> Depends on the, on the intonation there. <laughs> he's, um, and, uh, he's a translator of the words of the Buddha and also a translator of some of the great uh, forest masters in Thailand. And uh, he's been very important here in the West for his deep analysis and reading of the teachings of the Buddha and presenting them in very accessible ways here to us in the West. And I think he's had a big impact on many of us, and uh, it's wonderful to have him here. Thank you. Well, thank you for the wonderful welcome. (coughs) (laughs) We're one week into the new year. I'd like a show of hands. How many people have made New Year's resolutions this year? And how many are still going with them? (laughs) Okay, good. Okay, today's talk is to encourage those who haven't made resolutions to think about it and those who have made resolutions to continue more wisely in how you do it. Here in the West, we have only one new year a year. In Thailand, they have four. Um, January 1st, which they picked up from the West. Um, Chinese New Year in February. Um, Songkran, which is the Indian New Year, which is in the middle of April. And then there's an original Thai New Year, which was in early April or late March of the new moon. This gives them four chances to start the year outright. <laughs> and when you get to April, that's, your last, that's the last bus. Okay? And even though the New Year is a convention, I have yet to see the sun rise on January 1st with Happy New Year written across the sun. Um, it is useful to have conventions because... You can make good use of them, and it depends on how we use them. If you're going to get drunk all night the night before, that's not a good use of the convention. But if you do take it as an opportunity, look back in your life. How did the last year go? What things could be improved? What things were you doing that you shouldn't have? What things should have you been doing that you didn't? And it's a useful time to start getting a direction on where you would like your life to go. 
I was asking one of my students a while back if he had any New Year's resolutions, and he was surprised. He said, I didn't know you do that in Buddhism. And uh, making resolutions, um, what they call determination, is one of the bardamis, one of the perfections of the path. And whether you do it at the New Year's or more traditionally do it at the beginning of the Rains Retreat, it is still very much a part of the practice. If you read the biographies of some of the forest masters like a John Mun, a John Mahabua, or a John Lee, you find them always making a vow. I'm going to sit up all night tonight, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, and then doing their best to stick to the vow. And this gives their practice direction. Um, a lot of us don't like to hear this. We'd rather hear that it's just a natural unfolding. You put flo- like you put a flower in the water, and the flower eventually blooms without your having to do anything else to it. And this is a tendency, it's not only in the West, but also in the East, that we like to hear that it's just a natural, you know, your, your mind gets nice and quiet, all these wonderful insights come up, um, profound, beautiful insights, and you can just trust them because they're coming from a good spot in your mind. It's not the way it is. There's a lot of other stuff that can come up in a quiet mind, which is not all that reliable. But this tendency to look for the easy way out, I'll give you an example that comes from Thailand. There's a poem called the Bhattamasampod, which is a, a retelling of the story from the time of the Buddha's awakening up until the time he went back home to teach his family. And, and, and the climactic scene in the poem is when he goes back to see his wife. Now you probably know the story. He left her six years before. Um, and he's now gained awakening. He's coming back. All the other relatives go out to meet him when he comes into the city, except for his wife. And she says, if he really loves me, he's going to come here. So she stays in her palace for three days. And finally, on the third day, he does go to her palace. And the word comes that she's in the, he's in the outer room, so she comes. And as soon as she gets to the doorway to have her first glance at the Buddha, her eyes fill with tears so she can't even see anything. And so there's a very touching scene where she's talking to her tears. And then she finally goes down, she bows down to the Buddha's feet. And the Buddha's father is there and he says, I want you to know how loyal she was to you all this time. Um, um, we made offers for her to have, find another husband, uh, to, to take care of her that way, and she wouldn't listen to it. She stayed here in the palace, of her palace with her son, all alone. And the Buddha said, well, that's no surprise. She's been very loyal to me in the past as well. And then he tells a story from a Jataka tale of when the, both of them were ginneries on the slopes of the Himalayas. Now, ginneries are these half-bird, half-human creatures that sport around in the Himalayas, don't have anything, any work to do besides sporting around. And this deva comes by and sees her, and he really likes her. And he says, well, I, I want her for mine. So he kills the male ginnery and comes down to take, the, uh, take, take her, and she's not going to have anything of it. She says, look, this is not a just universe. If this can happen, I don't trust that there are gods up there who know what's going on and can allow this to happen. And sure enough, there's a, there's a trope in Indian literature that Indra sits on a seat that gets hot if anything is happening down in the human world that needs his attention. So Indra's seat heats up fast. So he has to go down and check and see what's happening and discovers that here's this female Ginnery who's not going to go with the Deva. She wants her dead husband revived. And so Indra revives him. And so it's because of her loyalty that he was able to live in that lifetime. And so while the Buddha is telling this story, his wife is bowing down at his feet and she's just so overwhelmed with rapture that he still appreciates her, he still loves her, that in this upwelling of rapture three of her fetters just float away. No more self-identity, no more uncertainty, no more attachment to precepts and practices. And I think all of us would like that. So a you know, beautiful upwelling of rapture and everything goes. Um, I'm here to tell you, it ain't the way it goes. <laughs> <laughs>
There is a sutta in the passage, where the, in the passage in the suttas where the Buddha talks about how when you get the conditions right, awakening will be a very natural occurrence without you having to put any extra willpower into it. The problem is getting the conditions right. And this is where willpower comes in. Recently reading a book, there's a lot of new positive psychology out, and sure enough there are now books on willpower. And they did, they've done some studies and they've learned two main things about willpower. Is that One is that as you wake up in the morning, you have a certain amount of energy to vote to decision-making in the course of that day. And everybody seems to have their kind of set limit. So if you make a lot of difficult decisions in the course of the morning, you're pretty much wiped out for the rest of the day. And so their cure for this, they said, is they notice that when people's blood sugar level is low, they have trouble making good decisions. And so they give you an, a very American approach to this, get your blood sugar level up. Of course, don't eat, eat, don't eat lots of sweets, especially if your resolve is that you're going to be eating less sweets, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <coughs> but this struck me as being a very American approach to a problem. There's no problem that a lot of good diet and exercise cannot solve. Um, it's like Garrison Keillor's version of Anna Karenina. Do you know that? Wait, do, you know, do you know the original story, Anna Karenina? She's, she lives with this miserable husband. It's a horrible marriage. She's trapped in it. And then she falls for this very dashing, handsome, but very vain military man named Vronsky. And the novel goes on for quite a long time. And finally, <laughs> towards the end, she realizes that even if she left her husband for Vronsky, Vronsky would probably leave her too. So she's stuck. And so what does she do? She goes down to the train station in St. Petersburg, throws herself under a train. And it's one of the most wrenching endings of a novel you can imagine. Um, so apparently, several years back, they asked s- some writers to write new endings to Anna Karenina. <laughs> <laughs> and they asked Garrison Keillor among them. <laughs> and so in Garrison Keillor's version, she's pacing this, the, the platform there in the train station in St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, waiting for the train to come. Of course, it doesn't come because Russian trains run late. You know. <laughs> and she's, she notices there is a big ad for Calvin Klein underwear. <laughs> and she looks at the woman in the ad, and she says, this woman does not suffer. She does not throw herself under trains so they don't come. And she decides, I've got to go to America and live like her. So she comes to America. <laughs> and first she na- changes her name to Anna Karen, and then to Donna Karen, and she becomes a... <laughs> She becomes a fashion designer. (laughs) Designing work clothes for women based on the designs of orthodox nuns' bathing costumes, okay? (laughs) And, you know, she goes down and she has her cup of coffee at the cafe in some corner in New York and reads the New York Times and goes to exercise class. And one day she's reflecting on her life. And, you know, by now her ex-husband has moved to Wisconsin where he now has what has what she calls a Swedish, dump, Swedish dumpling of a wife. Um, and Vronsky is now wearing plaid trousers down in Florida where he has a chain of tanning salons. <laughs> and she stops to think and says, to think that I could have... Try- I was thinking of losing my life, giving my life for him. You know? And then her comment is, the things you do when your blood sugar level is low. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as a little add-on, she, she goes on to think about, talk about what being Russian is like, and she says basically it, it's you're staying up late at night, tossing down glass after gla- glass after glass of vodka, and talking about nothing but death, death, death. It's a really bad hormone experience. I know. <laughs> um, 
And of course, Garrison Keillor is skewering both Russian stereotypes and American stereotypes, and it's, it's the hormones at your blood sugar level that's the problem. Um, so that's one of the things, that, however, that the positive psychologists tell you, is you've got to keep your blood sugar level up if you've got a resolution. Secondly, they, they do have an interesting point, though, is you have to learn how to rethink the situation. Because it doesn't happen that if you've been struggling over a decision and then finally go for what you think is the easy decision, that's going to take less energy. The struggle, it, the struggle in itself is what uses up all your energy. So you've got to find some way of re-looking looking in a new way at your particular problem in life to see how you can think of it in a more efficient way so it's a lot easier to go through these decisions. So you're not struggling all the time. So what else do I have here? So, and that's where we get some cross-fertilization here with the Buddhist teachings. In terms of keeping your energy level up, though, the Buddha does not recommend a high blood sugar level. He recommends the practice of concentration. And this is where the value of concentration comes in, is it gives you a lot of energy, particularly if you have a way of concentrating the mind where you gain a sense of well-being, gain a sense of refreshment, a sense of ease and pleasure, say, that come with the breath. Um, the method that I learned when I was in Thailand placed a lot of emphasis on breathing in a way that felt energizing when you felt tired, in a way that felt relaxing when you felt tense. In other words, you play with the breath to make it a really pleasant place to be. And then when you've got that sense of the breath that's comfortable, you think of the breath not so much as air coming in and out of the lungs, but the flow of energy in your body. And you ask, how does my rate, rate of breathing relate to the flow of energy in the body? How can I make that spread so I'm nourishing all the nerves in the body? And you think of the energy going out all to, to all your pores. This can help, rather than taking a, a, a snack in the middle of the day, this is a real good way of replenishing your energy. If you find that you've been making a lot of decisions or you just had a difficult decision, it's a good thing to stop and breathe in a way that you find refreshing. If you're facing a difficult choice, okay, stop beforehand. One of the things I noted in this particular book on willpower is that um, if you're going before a parole board, it's better to go after lunch than before lunch. <laughs> just in case. Um, in other words, the parole judges, when, when the decisions get difficult, they, they tend to get less kind and be willing, less willing to make chances. And so when they're, so they're, they're getting frazzled at the end of the morning, they tend to send more people back to prison. And so it's good to stop before a decision and take a couple of deep breaths, refresh the body, refresh the mind. So you can come at it, at the issue, with a lot more energy. As for the issue of how you look at things, this is precisely what, under the area of what the Buddha calls right view. Now we tend to think of right view when we think of more exalted things like the Four Noble Truths, dependent core arising. But when the Buddha talked about wisdom, he said one of the really basic measures of your wisdom is how you handle two situations in life. He says basically there are four kinds of action. The first kind is something that you like to do and you know is going to give good results. The second kind is something you don't like to do and you know is going to give bad results. Now those two things are no-brainers. You know, if you like to do it, it's going to give good results, you do it. If you don't like to do it, it's going to give bad results, you don't do it. The difficult ones, and this is where the Buddha says is the measure of your wisdom, is the things that you like to do but you know are going to give bad results down the line. Or the things you don't like to do but are going to give good results down the line. And he says, your ability to talk yourself out of the first one and talk yourself into the second one, that's the measure of your wisdom. So wisdom in his mind is pragmatic. It deals with strategies. How are you going to deal with this issue? There are certain things that you know you shouldn't be doing, but you're doing them anyhow. 
or things that you know you should be doing, but you just can't get the energy up to do them. How do you talk yourself into doing the right thing? And this is where your understanding of the issue is really important. In the West, we have a very peculiar belief about what's natural in the mind. On the one side, um, there's kind of a belief that there's, there's a natural purity to each of us, that deep down inside everybody is essentially good. And then there's kind of a natural wisdom that comes from this, uh, your essential goodness, and it's only because of social conditioning that it's been covered up. So you allow this to get uncovered, and you can trust what's gonna, what comes up when it gets uncovered. There's also the belief, however, that um, desire, lust, and anger are also natural. And you know, if you suppress them, they become like the thing. You know, they come out you know, five yards away and they look like an octopus. Um, so you've got to give, give um, room to those. Now, if you stop and think about this for five seconds, you realize that these two beliefs are really diametrically opposed. That you are naturally good and naturally kind, but also naturally lustful and naturally angry. And this sets you up for all kinds of problems. Something comes up in the mind and you say, well, this is just my natural wisdom speaking. Um, I can trust whatever comes up in my mind. But then when anger comes up, you say, if I, gee, if I don't act on my anger, I'm going to get cancer or whatever. <laughs> um, if I don't act on my desire, I'm going to have all kinds of problems. Um, so I found a, a much better way of looking at the issue of kind of the warring factions in your mind is that you've got a committee. Um, there's all kinds of members of this committee in your mind. They basically come from all the various selves that you've developed over the course of your life, and the different kinds of identity that you've, you've developed. Um, for example, an example I like to use is, suppose you have a little sister and your, your little sister is down the street and some bullies are threatening to beat her up. Now you go down and you protect her, because she's, she's your little sister. Now you come back home and she takes your toy truck and she starts playing with it and she won't give it back. She's not your sister anymore. <laughs> the boundaries of your, your notion of what's yours and what's not yours have changed. And this is something we learn as children, that we have these shifting boundaries of selves. Um, and actually this is, happens all the time throughout our lives. What you identify with at any one particular moment will not be the same thing that you're identifying with five minutes later. If you take a picture of yourself, it's like an amoeba, your sense of self. It changes, takes up different territory, pulls back here and pulls out there. And the selves that you remember are the ones that worked in gaining happiness of some kind, gaining pleasure, gaining a victory in something that you thought you had to win out over somebody. And we end up with a lot of stable, a huge stable of these little selves inside us that we can identify with at any time. You don't have just one sense of self, you have many. And they form a committee. Now this is not a committee of saints. Um, it's more like the Chicago City Council. <laughs> and you've got, some, you've got some reformist people in there, they want to do good, and then you've got some, the old entrenched interests to say, I'm not budging. You know. And what you've got to learn how to do is recognize that when some voice comes up very strongly in the mind, you don't have to identify with it. No matter how strong it may be, no matter how much it seems like this is what I feel, it's not necessarily you. And, and the question is, okay, at that point, can you find somebody else in your mind that you can identify with? that you can trust more, who actually do you know, help you out in this particular case. And the problem with most of us is that the, you know, the members of the committee who have lots of strategies tend to be the more devious ones. 
You know, it's like Florence Nightingale coming in and saying, okay, you know, we want to be nice and friendly, and because, okay, we'll, we'll be nice and friendly, but under the table we're still going to be doing all kinds of stuff that Florence Nightingale doesn't see. So what you've got to learn how to do is to give your more skillful selves more strategies. And the number one is you want to get the breath on your side to begin with, as I was saying earlier. So if you know that there's something skillful that you want to do but you can't do it, how do you give yourself the energy to sort of get over that hump? Or if there's something very unskillful that you feel really attracted to doing, how do you just kind of sit back and say, okay, why does this voice have so much power right now? And usually it's because there's part of the mind that wants instant gratification. We're very poor at delayed gratification here in the West. Um, but the part of us that wants the instant gratification is really yelling at us right now. And this is, this is another time when it's good to have, on the one hand, that understanding. This is not necessarily me. This is just one of my stable of selves that's getting very obstreperous. And then you say, okay, what can I do right now that would give a certain amount of pleasure? And this again is where the breath comes in. If you can know how to breathe through the various patterns of tension in your body, that helps change the balance of power inside. Other ways of dealing with this, you have to sit down, suppose you have something you know that you've been doing that you want to stop doing it. Okay, you have to sit down and give yourself a system of rewards and punishments. Yes, and, and this is something each of us has to figure out. You know, do you respond more to rewards or do you respond more to threat and punishments? One of the best rewards I know of is, suppose there's something that you like to do and, you know, suppose, you, suppose you're stuck on alcohol. You say, tonight you're really tempted to take that glass of alcohol. And so you just bear with it and say, tomorrow morning I'm really going to appreciate this, that I didn't do it. I'll look in the mirror and I'll feel a lot better about myself. Okay. That's an important thing, learning how to pat yourself on the back after you've done something that, that's been good. And then the next morning when you get up, really make a big point of the fact of remembering. I really do feel a lot better this morning for not having done that. So the next time around, the next time you feel tempted, you say, remember, remember how good I felt the next day? Can I give myself that gift tomorrow morning? As for punishments, this seems, seems to work better for things that you know you should do but you aren't able to do it. I know a lot of people say, well, I want to make a vow that I'm going to meditate more, and they set up a day, daily schedule. I'm going to meditate, say, half an hour a day or an hour a day. I found that the daily portioning out like that is not wise, because there are going to be some days when it's really hard to do it. And so what you want to do is give yourself some leeway. So, okay, in the course of this month, I want to meditate X number of hours, because you know there'll be some days when you feel more like it. And so you can build up a little you know, safety deposit of your meditation hours. And then on the days when you don't feel like it, you can say, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do half the amount, or always do something. Don't totally eat up your savings in the course of a day. But give yourself some time, and also give yourself a little leeway like that. Because one of the most important things about maintaining a resolution like this is your ability to trust yourself. If you've made all, lots of resolutions and they failed in the past, it gets to a point where you don't believe yourself anymore, and you can't make any res resolutions work in the future. But if you start with increments that you can trust yourself with, give yourself a little bit of leeway. And also, getting back to this theme of the things that you shouldn't be doing, but, you know you're, but you're doing them, but you know you shouldn't be doing them, give yourself alternatives. Like when you really feel a strong impulse to take in, you know, a bag of chocolate, what can you do in order to 
not take the bag of chocolate. Give yourself something else to do. And have this planned out ahead of time. Really, it works. It works a lot better than it's, you know, if the choice is between chocolate and nothing. <laughs> but if the, cho- if the choice is between chocolate and a walk in the park or chocolate and something else that you know is actually healthy, but not too hard, then, then you can quickly say, okay, I've got to take this other choice right now. And so it's wise, so if you're going to make a resolution, to sit down and plan these things out. If I'm, then the days when I don't feel like sticking up to my resolution, what are the alternatives? Give yourself something else to do. And then, then, of course, think about the whole issue of compassion. One, you're showing compassion for yourself in a way that really is helpful. All too often I've heard, you know, be compassionate with yourself comes down to give yourself an extra snack or give yourself an extra sweet, which is not compassion. Ask yourself, what do I really want in life? Do I really want a high blood sugar level or do I really want to accomplish, accomplish something? Do I really want to help other people? Do I really want to help myself? Um, Think about the people that you are helping through the force of your resolution. I had a friend back in Bangkok, an American um, journalist, who was a heavy smoker. And one day his little baby daughter comes running into the room where he's working and she starts coughing. And he realizes, whoops, this is not just me. This is her as well. So he put a little sign on his computer, you're doing this for your daughter. And he stopped smoking. One of the interesting things they found in that book on, on willpower was that people who can get their lives together more efficiently. One of my favorite techniques they had was of a, of a woman who was a general in the army. This one management consult- consultant had been drawn in, brought into the Pentagon to talk about you know, organizing your lives to the generals. <laughs> and, he was, and he asked, okay, give me your techniques for organizing your day. And only one of the generals, a woman, actually had a technique. The rest of the generals are just kind of floundering around, which tells you a lot. Um, <laughs> her technique was to make a list of all the things that had to be done in the course of the day, and she had them prioritized, one through ten. And then everything from three on down, she crossed out. So she's one and two. Okay, just focus on just a few things at a time. Um, the book also has some interesting techniques that different authors have for getting writing out of themselves. Um, Anthony Trollope apparently had the policy that he would sit down and he would write X number of words a day. Now, they didn't have to be good words, they didn't have to be publishable, but he would write X number of words every day. Um, Raymond Chandler had an opposite approach, was he gave himself four hours a day to write. And if he wasn't going to write, he wasn't going to do anything. He couldn't read, he couldn't walk, he couldn't do anything. He just had to sit there in his study. That's how he got all those novels out of himself. So again, a lot of this has to do with knowing your own techniques, what works with you, and look back in your life. What has worked with you in the past? All too often we don't even think about this. In my own case, I found I, I put aside two hours a day to do writing projects, and I tend to have two or three projects going at once, and they're all in different stages. Um, and, and one, is, and one, one is in a more creative stage, another is in the editing stage, another is in the post-editing stage, another is in the let's design the book cover stage. And I basically go every day on my impulse. What do I feel like doing today? And as long as the choices are between, among things that are useful, you, you can keep going, you get something produced. So a lot of this has to do with just knowing yourself, what works for yourself and what doesn't. 
And knowing also, as the, book, as the people in the book pointed out, was that when you get your life more sh in shape, you actually have more energy to help other people. You're not struggling so much with your own inner, inner conflicts. And you find that you have the energy and also the will that comes, that you, know, you see other people are having problems, you now have the energy to help. And it's, you, you can just go ahead and do it. So it's not just for yourself, getting your own life straightened out, but in straightening out your own life, you're helping others. The Buddha has an image of two acrobats one standing on the shoulders of the other. And the one on the bottom was the teacher and the, and, the, and the female acrobat on the top was the student. And the teacher said, okay, now you look out after me and I'll look out after you, and that way we'll both come down safely after we've performed our tricks. And she said, no, I have to look out after myself, you look out after yourself, and that way we help each other. In the case of acrobats, you know, I maintain my sense of balance, you maintain your sense of balance. It makes it easier for both of us. So remember, the more you get your own life straightened out, um, the better it is not only for you, but everybody else around you. Because this is one of the Buddhist basic teachings. It's not, true happiness is not a matter of just your gaining something at the expense of other people. True happiness doesn't have boundaries. You know, when you act in a more skillful way, the, you benefit, the people around you benefit as well. This is what makes the happiness of the Buddha teaches something special. So those are some of my thoughts. Do we have time for questions? We do, okay. we do have a little, <coughs> a little bit of time for questions, but okay. it, it might be worth um, keeping it short if, because of the meal time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, we got, we've got ten minutes. Yes. You have a mic? So um, I have a question about establishing a, like, a routine for meditation. Mm -hmm. um, and my issue is I... I have to be at work really early in the morning, so um, it's, you know, just getting getting up and getting ready. Um, it's like I can ma manage myself to get up, to get ready to, for work, to, but to get up before then to, like, meditate is really hard. Mm -hmm. And I get home late at night, um, and it's like I need to do my workout and stuff, so, like, finding the time to, to really meditate is really difficult. So I'm wondering um, if you have any suggestions in... Um, Finding that the balance for that. Okay. Do you work out every day? Um, I've actually found it hard since the holidays because um, I'm going to actually be starting a new routine um, today. But um, mm -hmm. I've kind of gotten out of that habit recently. Okay. Well, two things. One is either alternate the days when you meditate and you do your workout. To learn how to meditate while you're working out. Hmm. Can, like, if I was mindfully working out, I could well, kind of... Not just mindfully. Notice how your breath is and how, what's the best way, what's best way to breathe as you're working out. Mm. In fact, that's, that's, that's good for your exercise anyhow. Start with the breath as the, the center. And then the rest of the body comes out from the breath. Um, try to find some time during the day when you can take short meditation breaks. Um, I don't know how much time you listen to TV or watch TV. Internet? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, cut down your internet time. <laughs> and I would not recommend meditating. Well, you know, if you're going to be on the internet, meditate, but don't count it towards your meditation time. <laughs> so, so there's a few tips.
Thank you for that wonderful talk. I, um, it's very helpful for me, but I can't seem to narrow things into the four categories because when those four choices are clear, it's more easy for me to make a decision. But I get um, paralyzed by indecision. And my committee, they're all such good argument people that, you know, I can spend all morning with the committee and I'm exhausted by noon. Okay, and so um, it, you know, when you talk about the struggle, I, I could certainly relate to that. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, aside from the ones where you know, it's, the problem is you don't know what the result is going to be. When, the, when, when you have a general idea of what the results are, then the next question you should ask yourself is, I don't know what the results are. What kind of mind state would make me go for that as opposed to this one? And which one do you seem to be coming from a ba- greater position of clarity and stability? There is no clarity. There's no it's clarity all. In, the, in that case, you just throw a dart or something. And then, and <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, sincere, yeah, seriously. I, I mean, they've done studies about people making major life decisions, and they realize that, um, and, and this is really scary, many of your major life decisions, you could have gone either way, it would have been perfectly fine either way. One more question? Yes. What's the name of the book that you talked about? Willpower. Yes, Willpower. It's by Baumeister and somebody else. Although I've discovered now that once that book came out, there's a huge flood of books on willpower. And, uh, and I must admit, with positive psychology, every now and then, you, you have to read a whole book and you get maybe two or three good points out of the book. And the rest is just so fatuous you can't believe it. But, um, <laughs> So I think I gave you the major points. They do have some, you know, some really good little te- you know, techniques for what you might do dealing with your inner committee. Yes. In what, su- in what sutra does the uh, the Buddha talk about uh, uh, wisdom and and uh, these practical decisions? Okay, it's it's in the Anguttara Forest, and I've forgotten the number. Go. If you look at Handful of Leaves, Volume 3, it should be in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I ask how you made your decision to focus on the Dhamma and not other things? Oh. My own decision. Um, like why you were doing it? Again, this is one of those decisions I, I fought over for a long time. Um, the alternative would have been probably to go on to graduate school. And I can't. I was kind of back and forth. The, the big thing for me was having met my teacher and realized, here's someone who was really seemed to be very happy and very solid. And he said he wasn't born that way. It was the training. And I really wanted that quality. But um, it, it was a difficult in coming from my background here in the States to make that decision. The, the incident that helped make it, um, I was invited to a, a conference. It was the American Academy of Religion. They had their, their annual conference in Chicago. And one of my former professors was going to be giving a, a paper there, and he wanted me to come and kind of sit in. And so we got there, and it was on Thai Buddhism. And they had three experts in Thai Buddhism giving papers. And there was this huge ballroom in this hotel in Chicago, and I'd say there were maybe about 20 people sitting in one corner of the ballroom, and that was it. And the three professors got up there, and they were talking about three different aspects of Thai Buddhism that were totally unrelated to anything that the other one was talking about. And I don't know if you've ever read any Jean Piaget. 
He's a French psychologist. He did a lot of study of child development, and he did this really interesting um, diary of his daughter's mental development. And she went through this stage at one point where every time she had a bowel movement, she couldn't, you wouldn't, she wouldn't let you flush the toilet until she had made a story about all the little pieces floating in the toilet. <laughs> and that vision went through my mind as I was watching this. <laughs> <laughs> And that was when I decided I had to go back to Thailand. <laughs> so. What was the committee discussion in your mind that night? Committee discussion was, um, could, I, could I handle it? Was, it going to be, was I going to be a failure? Was it going to be a waste of time? Was I going to be up for this? Because it was a very demanding lifestyle over there. Was there any fear? In yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm.